I think it was always with me. I don't know. I mean, I, I did grow up in New York. I grew up in Atlanta. And uh, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to, uh, to see theater. I did see some. I just always loved it. I just cared about and I could write. I mean, I had that ability. And I had a grade school teacher who encouraged me to write. And uh, it just, I was lucky. A lot of it's luck. And at that time early on, were you writing plays or lyrics or what form was that? You mean when I was a kid? Yeah. You know, I, I think, let me cut, I'm sorry about it. I think I was, uh, wrote poems. I didn't know exactly, I, I didn't know the difference. I didn't know what lyrics exactly were, except I liked them. And I wrote little plays. And in high school, I wrote a whole musical when I couldn't even play the piano. And uh, I was just an odd kid that liked all that stuff. Oh, yes. And how did your sort of style of writing develop from over the college training and, and all of that? Well, you know, they always say, write what you know. Oh. And it took me a long time to realize that's what I needed to do. I mean, as I said, I always had the ability to write and I sort of facility. So I, I just kind of copied people. I loved like Rogers and Hammerstein and I kind of unwittingly copied all that stuff. And, uh, I coasted along on that for a while, and then I, I just came, it occurred to me that I had things to say that nobody else could exactly say. I wish I'd have realized that when I was in my 20s. Oh. And when you were growing up, of course, you wrote a lot of plays later on about being Jewish in Atlanta and growing up in Atlanta, and when you were young, were you looking at things with that eye towards playwriting the things that were no. happening right here? Oh. No, I was just living my life. And I guess watching things and listening and taking things in and thinking. So when I was a kid, everything in my little world seemed like high drama to me. That was just my nature. So I just had a lot of things stored up in my head. And when it came time to let it out, it started to come out. Oh, yes. And how did you originally move to New York? How did that decision happen? I uh, went to Brown and from Atlanta. Not many people did that. <laughs> and uh, I met a guy at Brown, and he and I wrote a musical, two musicals while we were at Brown that got produced. At Brown, in those days, they had a, a, an original musical every year oh. put on. And I had two of them with him. <laughs> And uh, we decided, he lived in New York, in Brooklyn, and he asked me if I wanted to come to New York and try to make it, and I said, sure. And uh, I didn't know anybody in New York but him, and at the same time, I was in love with this girl that was a class behind me at, at Brown, and we were going to get married, and we did. And she went to work, and I moved to, and I, she and I lived in the West Village, and me and this guy, Bob Walden, 
started working together. Oh, yes. And I know an, an early musical you wrote together was Here's Where I Belong on Broadway. And, yeah. <laughs> and so how did the idea for that come to you? Was that? That was Bob Wallman's idea. He loved that. Have you seen that movie with James Dean, East of Eden? Oh, no, I haven't, but I have heard of it. You know of it well. So it had a huge effect on teenagers and young guys that age back then in the, in the 50s. And uh, Bob Wallman always wanted to make a musical of it, and he wrote these soaring melodies and... I wrote some lyrics. It was always his show, but I, I went along because I thought, oh, this is a wagon that I should hitch up with. And uh, we wrote this score. And have you ever heard of Mitch Miller? You can ask your parents who he was. Uh, but they're a little young, young too. He was, a, he was an orchestra leader. He had a show on television. And he discovered all kind of pop singers and things. Well, he wanted to get into the musical theater business. And he heard our score. And he decided he would help us make a musical of it. And uh, we were introduced to John Steinbeck, who luckily I got to meet Mr. Steinbeck a few times, who had just taken his teenage boys on a trip around the world. And he hired a tutor from who had just graduated from Columbia. And that tutor's name was Terrence McNally. Oh. So... So Terrence and Bob and I wrote this musical. And it was Terrence's, I think Terrence has had one show before that. But we were all young and wrote this musical and uh, went through the jaws of hell <laughs> out of town. And it was this real shock to me. I, I thought everything was going to just, we were going to sail along and have the next, I don't know, South Pacific or something. But it didn't work that way. And uh, in their infinite wisdom for some reason, Mitch Miller and the producers decided to bring the show into New York after it had disastrous run in Philadelphia. And it came in, it ran one night, and uh, that was my intro to the New York stage. Oh, yes. And what do you think that it was about the show that made it run a short time? It was very heavy-handed. Oh. And uh, I learned pretty much, if you have an iconic performance like James Dean and East of Eat, or indeed now you see it with this uh, Hello God, with this uh, funny girl, I mean, Barbara Streisand is iconic. You can't, you can't copy that, and uh, everything is going to be a, a sad imitation of that. And that was against us. Also, the movie was better. Yeah. The book was better, but I didn't know that then. Oh, and then. I believe this might be going back a little bit before this, but I know you had some sort of mentorship from Frank Lesser early on. Oh, yeah. You really did your homework there, Charles. <laughs> uh, when I, when Bob and I started New York, fresh out of college, his brother was an actor. And his brother had heard of uh, that Frank Lesser had a sort of a publishing deal where he would sort of 
mentor young writers and then publish all their songs. And we auditioned for him and got this thing where he paid us princely sum of, I think, $50 a week for two years. And we wrote songs, but the best thing about it was we got this private tutoring from Frank Lesser, who was a brilliant songwriter. Do you know his work? Yes, yes, Guys and Dolls. Yeah, Guys and Dolls, How to Succeed, Most Happy Fella. He was a brilliant, brilliant songwriter. And the thing that was amazing about him is he never repeated himself. He always did something different. And he he taught me pretty much how to write. And what he said, I'll never forget it. This is about lyrics, because I wasn't aware. And he said, if you think of a lyric, think of it like a big old long freight train, and it's going by. You're sitting, you're sitting on the tracks waiting for the lights to change, and first you see a engine, then you see, I don't know, a coal car, then you see a milk car, then you see a caboose, and the first thing you see is that, and it's gone. He said, you have to think of a lyric that way, that an audience is sitting in the theater, and they hear something, and it attracts them, and then you fill it in. Well, I applied that to playwriting, that 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 you had to make it pretty clear. And at the same time, I had a job in a private school teaching uh, teaching Shakespeare to, to ninth graders, which is what I guess you are. Yes. Uh, and I, uh, I was teaching the same two plays over and over and over again uh, to beginning Shakespeare. I would start with Romeo and Juliet, and then I would do Big Beth, and they're so different. And I taught them so often that I really kind of got to know them. And I saw that Shakespeare was doing exactly that, making things very clear and then repeating them and then repeating it again. I don't know how familiar you are with Macbeth. You can certainly see that this movie with Denzel and Fran McDormand, it's as good as it gets. And in the sleepwalking scenes, very famous, you got the doctor and the nurse and the doctor and the nurse the doctor says, how is Lady Macbeth? And she says, oh, she's not good. She's walking in her sleep, and she's saying scary things, and she doesn't know who she is. So in comes Lady Macbeth, and she starts talking in her sleep and saying scary things, and she walks out, and the doctor said, boy, that was really scary. She was saying some weird things. <laughs> and the nurse said, yes. Three times they do that. Three different times. And... So you get, oh, yeah, this is what he's doing. And if you could be that clear without being boring about writing, I mean, of course, Shakespeare was a genius, so he knew how to do that. But it was a very, let your audience know where you want them to be. Be clear about your intentions. Yeah. And in addition to that advice, what would you say you've sort of learned from the experience of Here's Where I Belong about going forward in theater? I learned that you if you if you if you've got it just go on with it don't give up yeah i didn't exactly know what i was doing but i knew enough to know that i was hooked and that i wanted to do it and i kept going oh yeah. that's what i learned from that one yeah and so then your next um musical i believe was the robert bridegroom after this and exactly and that was on the right road because oh. I'm a Southern boy, and I happened to pick up that book in a bookstore. And I, of course, had heard of Eudora Welty, who wrote the book, 
and uh, but I'd never heard of this one. And I just, it was delightful. And I read it. And I was this nobody, and I wrote her a, a letter, and I said, do you think I could, would you let me try to turn this into a musical? And this wonderful lady wrote me back and said, well, other people have tried, but they didn't make it. But sure, go ahead and try. And so I did. And uh, it was much closer to home than something like East of Eden. It was Southern. It was kind of randy. And uh, I had fun, and Walburn had fun. And uh, we got a workshop at uh, back, I guess, in the early 70s, uh, a workshop production. And uh, you know who John Houseman was? Yes, yes. So John Houseman was a was a collaborator of the director, whose name was Gerald Friedman. And Houseman came to see this thing, and he said, "You know, I've got a graduating first. The first class at the, of the of, of out of Juilliard Drama School is the first class, and we're starting something called the Acting Company. And some of them are singers." And I think this would be a great show for them. Of course, you know who those singers were. I don't know if you know, but it was the class included Patty Lapone and Kevin Klein and on and on like that. And so they proceeded to do the Robert Bride group. And we, it became part of the repertory of the uh, actors company. They would, they did some Shakespeare and some heavy stuff like that. They also did the Robert Bride group. And we played, it was a touring company, played two weeks in New York. And uh, I got down for a Tony and so did Patty. And uh, the next year they did a regular full, full on production of the Robert Bride group. And that's how that happened. Oh, yes. And so when you were sitting down with that book originally, how did you decide how to sort of cut and expand it? into a you know that's a interesting question because i don't exactly know how i just went with my gut and i thought gee it'd be fun to do this and this is funny and that's funny and this part i just don't know if i could do right and i just sort of start to swim along inside of it myself i don't know if you know what i mean but there weren't rules to follow it just was my gut took over yeah. and I started writing Walden loved doing it. And, uh, I, I guess I got sort of hooked into writing the book cause I, I didn't have anybody else to do it. So I did it and it was a little stiff. And I remember the director, Jerry Friedman said, you know, you have talent and I can feel it in these rhythms, but, be careful what you do. Don't just go with something that you, you've, you've seen before, right? Write it real from yourself. And of course it was a big farce. So, uh, I, it was not as hard as like hooking into yourself, but I did it. I had a wonderful director, a good score and, uh, went on from there. And did that, um, did you have to do any sort of research or did the like vernacular just come naturally to you? Well, I, yeah, I did some research, Charles. I, uh, I did, there was, you know, this all took place on a road in Mississippi, a highway called the Natchez Trace, which is just a path, pathway through the woods. 
And I read up a little bit about times in Mississippi before it was a state, and it had a lot of uh, legend going on there. Uh, the Harp brothers, one of whom had his head cut off, and so the, the living brother carried his brother's head around in a trunk and conferred with it all the time. And a hero named Jamie Lockhart, who half the time pretended he was somebody else, and a beautiful ingenue who lied all the time. I mean, it was full of very picaresque people. And uh, it was a lucky find for me. And I loved, I mean, I loved it. I still love it. Yeah. And what was it like to have that recent revival of the show that was very successful? And were there changes made for that? Or? Little changes. Alex uh, was a great director. And uh, he, because of what he was trying, the way he was trying to stage it, we uh, cut down some of the scenes that that were in different locales, and he kind of put it all together. Alex Timbers, who is very, very good, and also very young, like I was at Walmart was when we did the show in the first place. It's a very young sort of a show, and we had a wonderful cast. Uh, Stephen Pasquale was the Robert Bridegroom, and he was just so funny, and it was delightful to see it come back and do that. And so what is your uh, process like with, with Robert Waldman? And do one of you write the lyrics or music first, or is it all together? I, we don't. Uh, we haven't worked together in a long time. Oh. And uh, it was not, we didn't fall out. I just started writing plays, and, oh. and there was a musical. But uh, as I recall, it was a little bit of both, but mostly his music first. I, I mean, so. I don't know if... If a strange loop is right for a kid your age to see, I don't know. And I wouldn't tell you to go or not go. But it's a case of somebody really deep diving into himself and doing that. Or something I'm sure you probably have seen, Hamilton, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, there's a case of Lynn just really, really getting a lot of research and a lot of feeling and he said oh my god this is a good idea for a musical and he just yeah. did it yeah. and if something strikes you like lightning like that just go with it and I, I would be curious to know a sort of similar question about the but when you are writing the book and not the lyrics or music do you like to do either that first or second or well the book comes first it should the book is really hard because the book is the architecture of the whole piece. And the book is what gets attacked all the time. Uh, and a lot of Sondheim shows, like uh, Merrily We Roll Along, uh, the book is a mess. And Follies, the book, isn't so great either. But actually, those could just be concerts. You would get just as much out of hearing all the score and never, never hearing any songs, uh, never hearing any book play. Uh, a good amalgam is something like uh, like Hamilton is pretty much all sung it's really kind of if, if you look at it it doesn't have many straight scenes dialogue scenes uh, and in the old days of course Rogers and Hammerstein mixed it all together uh, a lot of Sondheim shows do mix it all together like Finding Out on the Way to the Forum or Company uh 
uh, and, and Sweeney Todd's got a big, thick book. So it's just, it's like somebody's handprint or fingerprint. Everything's different. You just go with what seems right for that. You, yeah. I, if I could go back and do anything about my career, it would be to trust myself and not try to do something that I thought would, would be popular. Yeah. I'd be curious to know about um, one of the early shows. This is, of course, way ahead. And, but one of the early shows that you uh, sort of revised the book for, not Robo Rife, was uh, Little Johnny Jones on Broadway. Oh, yeah, that was a good job. I was a friend of the director, and I had worked with him. He was on the original acting company, same as Gerald Gutierrez. And uh, he was directing this show at, at Goodspeed, where I had never been in my life. Do you know what Goodspeed is? Yes, he had the theater in Connecticut. Yeah, right. And it was, in the, back then, it was just, it was doing old musicals. So this was a musical that was written in 1904. And the book by George M. Cohan, I'm sure you know who that is, right? So the book was impossible. I mean, it was racist and just, and it had references to contemporary references that nobody knew what the hell they were talking and we were talking about then. So I got to really rewrite it. And I learned at good speed how to write book, how to set up songs, how to experiment with jokes. It was like a wonderful lesson. And little Johnny Jones was a very dated piece that got really good notices up there. And uh, a, a national tour was was put together. It toured the United States for a year. And all that time, the director worked on it and, and I would play around with the book. And of course, the score was all there. So I had a lot of, a lot of experience working on there. I learned a lot of things about it and I did, oh boy, two other shows or three other shows at Goodspeed. And all the time it was doctoring old books and and setting up songs and learning how to write jokes that worked and just spade work like that. It was, I was lucky to get a job like that. And what was it like to have to sort of write to fit in with the style that was already there and, and make it all blend? It was fun. I just got myself in the mood of the show. And we, you know, again, it was just going into my head and thinking, oh, I'm watching a show with, I mean, it had a ludicrous plot about a jockey who, who threw a race and, and uh, I think it's based on a real jockey and disgraced himself and worked his way back. And I just went with, with the story and, and my, my gut took over again. And when you are writing a book, either for a completely original book or a revising book, how do you view it differently than, or do you view it differently than just sort of like a shorter play? Well, I'll tell you, a book has to be kind of, very spare because it just has to basically do character, do plot quickly and move along and set up the songs. And there's no point in writing scenes that say, Oh, I love you so much. I love you so much. I need you so much. I want you so much. Cause the song's going to do that or say I'm alone in the world or I'm whatever. That's the, 
the gut part. That's the song part. So you just set it up. You just, that's why it's like building a house. Yeah. And do you occasionally, like say for Parade, which you were writing the book and Jason Robert was writing the music and lyrics, do you have any input into that side of it as well? Or do you want to? Absolutely. Oh, Jason was just starting out and I was 25 years older than him. And uh, he, Jason had the facility to listen. And he heard what I said because I had grown up in the South. I knew about the Leo Frank case. My family had been involved. Oh. And he just took it all in. And uh, we sort of, sort of kibbed with each other. Uh, it was a fortunate collaboration. Yeah. And when you are dealing with a subject like that, that's so dark and, and horrible, obviously, the ending of it, how do you sort of make it palatable to audiences still? I had the big advantage of having Hal Prince director. Oh. And Hal just insisted that I stay close to the facts. He said, don't be afraid of, like, in parade, it's never actually said, because nobody really knows who killed the girl, but it looks like it's the janitor, yeah. the black janitor. And so uh, it, it's not fashionable to have, have that character be black, but he was. So I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I thought, well, this guy is uh, probably the smartest person in the room. And he probably is, uh, hates white people. He's got a very, certainly reasons to. And uh, he's smart and he gets away with things. And what he really did in life was he told the same story every time. He never changed one detail over, over years of, of testifying. And uh, it was the case. So I've... I've endowed that character to me as being the smartest person in the show. And Jason wrote him some powerful stuff, so we don't judge him. Yeah, yeah. And what was the sort of inspiration for that being relevant at that time? And then I know it's coming back later this year as well. And why was this the right time? Oh, I think it's the right time. Because you can see how easily an incident like that, will, an incident of a little girl who was in a factory being murdered and the last person to see her alive was this sort of creepy uh, Yankee. And don't forget it's 1915 when, when uh, people in the South had lived in occupied territory. They'd lost a war. They, they were full of hatred and bitterness at the life during their lives were taken. And, Everybody in that show except the prosecutor and the, news, the, the paper uh, editor were victims. The white people were victims. The black people were victims. Leo Frank was a victim. The uh, lead prosecutor became the governor of Georgia. And the, and the editorial writer became a senator from Georgia. And it, was, it gave rebirth to Ku Klux Klan. It has sort of scary parallels to the world today. 
Yeah. When you were and right. it shows up people it just goes into it's like you stick your finger in the water and you make a whirlpool and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it takes over. Yeah. And when you were go going to write that show, what was your sort of research process like for that? Although I know you mentioned that your family had been involved, but to... I didn't have to do much because I grew up knowing it all. And I read some books and Jason read some books. And I think Jason probably knows more about the case now than I do. But uh, again, I, I went with what I knew and what I felt. Yeah. And I think if you don't feel anything, uh, and sometimes if you, if you get hired to write something, then you're supposed to be professional enough to do it. And to try to hook yourself into it somehow. If you can't, you just go ahead and earn the money and that's and try your best. But I was very lucky with that because I, I personally hooked into it. Yeah. And then another show that I... I'm assuming it's personal as well, was Driving Miss Daisy, which is such a famous and such a great play. Oh, it's about my grandmother. Oh. So it really happened. About my grandmother and her driver. My grandmother lived in the house with us. It was my life. I mean, in the in the play, she, my, grand, my real grandmother didn't have a son. She just had my mother. So some of it's my mother and me. And, I mean, that was all stuff I remember. Real, real to me, totally real. Yeah. And did did writing any of these plays sort of give you deeper insight into these people or memories that you had? Or... Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. And deeper insight into myself, which I think for a writer you really need. And sometimes it takes you to places you don't want to go. Yeah. But I've learned that that's life. And I wish I'd known that. I wish somebody said that to me when I was 14, uh, to look into yourself and see what's important and just not what's popular, but what's important and believe in it and believe in yourself. I was lucky I had a, a mom that really encouraged me to write and I had a wife who encouraged me to write when I doubted myself and I was lucky. Yeah. And I'd be curious to know, did you ever have the experience of people from your childhood or from where you were from seeing the plays that you wrote about them or about of the Of course. Oh. Of course. And they'd almost never recognized themselves in it. A couple of times I, I kind of went over the line. I wrote about a cousin of mine. And people kind of knew it was him. But other than that, they didn't know. Yeah. Sometimes I would drag, drag up names that I thought I was making up that were names from out of my past. And somebody said, why did you make so much fun of my grandfather? I said, I don't know what you mean. And they tell me his name. And I said, Lord, I didn't remember that was your grandfather. She said, name, I thought I made up. Uh, so, so those things happen. And with um, with Driving Miss Daisy in particular, you adapted it for the screen. And what was that like to, or what changes did you make sort of for that process? Sheer luck. I had a wonderful director. An Australian of all things named Bruce Beresford. And he said, I wrote a draft and he said, Yeah, what you've done is just recopy your play. And you can't do that because you can't have as much dialogue in a movie as you have in a play. So you have to rethink this thing. And remember, you've got a camera on people's faces. So you don't have to write about how they feel so much. You can see it. 
and just cut down. He said, I'm trying to think of visual images of when you were a kid in Atlanta, things that you remember seeing, like, like what it was like inside your house and what the streets were like and what it smelled like in the summertime, things like that. And I understood what he meant and I did it. And uh, he was a great director. I had a great cast and Jesus knows I was lucky. And when when something like that is so personal, how do you go about casting it? And do you cast people who were like the actual people you knew, or is that not as much of it? Well, my grandmother hardly looked like Jessica Tandy. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, Jessica was beautiful. My grandmother was wonderful to me, but not so beautiful. Uh, but I found, and Morgan, of course, you don't play the original play. So... And he grew up, he's my age, and he grew up in the South the same way I did. And he said, I think this character is like my father. So there was never any question of him being right for it. And we all kind of knew in the play what we were talking about. And in the movie, Bruce just got it. I think if a writer is really writing honest stuff, a good actor will pick up on it, so will a good director. If it's not manufactured, if it's coming from reality, they get it. Yeah. yeah. And are there actors who are your favorite sort of interpreters of your own work? Like I know Dana Ivey did two plays of yours. Dana it? certainly is. Morgan certainly is. I had a lot of British ladies play Miss Daisy, oddly oh. enough. Uh, you know, I had Angela Lansbury did it in Australia. Dame Wendy Hiller did it. Uh, Joan Plowright did it. Uh, and somehow or another, these English ladies picked up on it. And uh, I've worked with wonderfully, wonderfully lucky actors who who got what I was talking about. And, and actors, I've got a lot of respect for actors. They're at the mercy of who writes the thing. Oh. And uh, these, these good ones, I did a movie once with Albert Finney, who was just so generous and so understanding what I was trying to do. It wasn't a great movie, but he just lit up the part. And that happens sometimes. If you if you write well enough and honestly enough, you'll probably find a performer who can hit it out of the park. Yeah. And then we, we talked a little bit about adapting Driving Miss Daisy for the screen, but how do you approach writing a purely screenplay like the movie you did for Albert Finney? You have to, we'll see. You have to sort of Put yourself in a in a state where you're seeing a movie happen in your head. You say, "Okay, so so this is happening." So apparently, it would be a good idea to see a close up on his face right here, and then you switch to the wheel of the car. You just see a movie in your head, yeah. and you're right that. And what would make you think of a certain subject as a movie versus a play? I was sort of driving the stage that it's going to be a good movie, even though it was a little tiny stage, you know, it was a fake car and three people on a little off-Broadway stage. Uh, something with scope, something something with a really solid story. Movies are about story and a plot that'll get you through. Uh, some things are better as plays if they're sort of delicate. Like a play like The Glass Menagerie is better seen live on stage. Uh, 
I don't know. I think Shakespeare sometimes works in the movies given like, I don't know if you saw this Macbeth, this recent one, but it totally works. It looks like screenplay. Oh. And it's just all, I don't know if you saw it, but it would be a good one to start with. Oh, yes. Oh. It's just, it's again, it's going back to your head. I see this on a stage. I feel like I'm in an audience watching, so I'll just move it along in the same with, with uh, movies, I guess. And there was a musical, I know you did that, closed out of town called Swing. And what what was that show about? It was a job for hire. Oh. It was a hire. I was a lyric writer, Walman was a score. And it was, it closed out of town. It was about uh, Swing. It was, the plot never made much sense to me. But again, I was hired to write Broadway shows, so I needed to work. Uh, and it never coalesced, but it, again, I learned some things. I learned to write some stuff. I worked with some pros, and uh, life went on. Yeah, yeah. And so, how did you transition from originally writing mostly musicals to being mostly a playwright? Uh, I had a friend who wanted to be a Broadway producer, or who wanted to produce, and she was always asking me to go see shows, see what I thought of them. So I went to, I think, Stanford, Connecticut, to see a play that she was interested in doing. And I don't remember the name of it, but it was a two-character play about a white girl in Minnesota or somewhere and a black person, black woman in Africa that were somehow corresponding. And it's just the two of them. And it was all epistolatory, all letters, and uh, back and forth. And it went very good. And I thought, my God, I could write a better play than that. <laughs> and I I thought, oh, well, I could write about my grandmother and her tribe. It just all came on to me. Oh. And so I did it. And but if I hadn't seen that thing in Stanford, I don't think I ever would have thought of it. How did the idea come to you for another play that was sort of around your experience of The Last Night of Ballyhoo? Oh, that was about my parents. Oh. Sort of all transferred and walked around my, about my parents uh, falling in love and about what Atlanta was like and about all the Jewish anti-Semitism I kind of grew up around. So I just put it all together and I had fun with it. And so um, I'd love to ask about a sort of unusual show you did, which was Edgardo Mine stand-up. Yeah, another job for hire. And uh, I, I was very intimidated by that stuff, but it was irresistible. And I, I worked on it. I never quite felt secure with it. Oh. We did a production in Hartford that wasn't very good. And I think maybe, let me see. Uh, seven or eight years later, we did the same show in uh, in Minneapolis at the Guthrie, and I had time to work on it and revise it. That got better, but it, I never got it to where it should have been. It's so fascinating. I, I, at the same time, Spielberg was supposed to be making a movie of it, oh. and he I don't think he ever cracked it either. It's a wonderful story and a good premise, but it was a little beyond my my scope. Yeah. And so um, a, a play you did or a musical you did on Broadway that probably wasn't based on any experiences that you had was Love Music. And 
So how? That was another job for hire. Oh. Because Hal, Hal was directing it, and he asked me if I and there were books written about Court File and Loving Lynch, and of course I'd seen Loving Lynch and Cabaret and Three Penny Opera, and I I admired Court Files very much. So I did a lot of research, listened to a lot of songs. And got myself in the mood to do it, and uh, the show was better than it was received. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but it was good stuff, and I'm glad I did it. Okay. But it wasn't personal to me. And when you when you finish writing a show that isn't a show for hire, but just one of your own ideas, how do you go about sort of getting it staged and getting it produced? You've got to get it somebody that wants to direct it and produce it somehow. And that's harder and harder now, except there's a lot of venues. You, it's hard to, you got to find a director who, 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 who appreciates what you did and will help you. I, I will say, well, this is great, but this isn't working. Instead of some jerk that isn't really paying attention to you. It's tricky. It's hard. Yeah. There's no magic bullet there. And do you always, when you write plays, is the sort of goal, or would you always want them to be on Broadway, or do you write someplace that... No. Oh. No, I just wanted... I wrote a, a dance piece with a wonderful choreographer named Martha Clark. It's called Angel Reapers, that we did it, that, where we did Signature a couple of years ago, and it's all about the Shakers. That was a research piece for me. But, but we turned it into a dance piece, and it had a lot of dialogue in it. And it was a very exciting experience writing directly for these dancers, writing some dialogue for them, and I uh, learned some stuff I never learned before. And uh, again, that was a research piece that really worked. And uh, if you do a lot of stuff, some of it's going to work and some of it's not. And I don't know. Yeah. And I'd love to ask about another great uh, dance sort of director that you worked with recently, which was Kathleen Marshall. Oh, yeah, we did a... Kathleen and I did a musical about Toulouse-Lautrec, which was not such a great idea, but it had a really good score by a very famous French composer called Charles Aznavour. Oh. And Kathleen was great. We got to do it twice, reworked it, uh, did some good stuff. Uh, it wasn't totally original, and I'm glad I got the work. That was another job for hire. Uh, I loved working with Kathleen. And is there a show of the plays that you've worked on that you remember that, or musicals that has changed the most throughout its development? Oh. Uh, I guess the Robert Bridegroom. Oh. Because it was developed. I didn't really know what I was doing and I was learning. And it had a, a nice evolution. It had a lot of different workshop productions and real, real productions in front of live audiences and I just it toured for a year with the acting company while we were getting ready for Broadway so I could go back to see it and fix it and change it and worked on it a lot. And it was a good, rich subject. So the same sort of with Beret, I learned a lot yeah. by having it done again. And then so to, um, to take us up sort of to the present, what was the experience of this recent pandemic like for you as a writer? And... Well, I'm an old man now, and I didn't mind staying home at all. And I watched stuff on television, and I thought, and it's a good time to go into yourself, which is part of writing. 
I'm glad it's getting over with. I've been, I'm a Tony voter, so I've been to a lot of shows oh. in a lot of short space of time. And uh, seeing, I, I admire actors more and more because they give a thousand percent all the time. And they're at the mercy of what they're working with, but they try anyway, uh, you know. Yes, definitely. And is there something that you would like to do coming up, be it a new idea you have or a revival of? I'm working on something right now, but it's, I'm too soon to talk about it, but it's for television. Oh. Because I have some friends out there, and I, a lot of the stuff I like now seems to be stuff that's being streamed. So I thought, well, let me give this a try. We'll see. Yes. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor. You're to very welcome, Charles, and good luck with things.